0: Indeed, what rich songs we have been privileged to praise the Lord with this evening, songs that uh, contain within them a, a great deal of truth regarding the Christian life. It is indeed sweet to trust in Jesus, yet sometimes that trust must come even when the Lord himself seems to be punishing us and revealing to us the dark places in our own heart. The things within our own lives that must be exercised in order for us to live a life of faithfulness to him. Sometimes that faith, that trust, comes difficult. We must trust in spite of our circumstances and in spite of sometimes what we feel to be true within our own lives. As we sing about in John Newton's hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow Indeed, growth often comes through great struggle and through great difficulty and the revealing of sin in our lives. And so I pray that as we continue to worship now, as we turn to the Word of God, that more sin might be revealed. So that regardless of how painful it might be, that we might indeed grow in the grace of God, the grace that is, as we sang to begin with, greater than all of our sins the grace that is able to cleanse us and purify us and to make us look more and more like Christ. So I would ask that you turn with me to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 15. It is indeed a high and sometimes difficult calling to trust in Jesus. It is sweet, but it is sometimes difficult and Part of the difficulty comes from the fact that there is an idol that we sometimes dabble with. No matter who you are, it's likely that at some point you have bowed the knee to this God, that you are tempted to do so on a regular, if not daily basis. And the problem is that this God that we are tempted to prostrate ourselves before the God that we are going to see Samson worshiping in this chapter tonight this God is no harmless God this is no benign deity but a raging beast a consuming fire that is never satisfied and once you give in just a little bit to this God it will demand more and more and more of you until it consumes you It has the potential to wreck your relationships, to destroy your family, to isolate you from those that you love, and ultimately to lead you to hell. This is an insatiable God. Yet the danger of this God, of this idol, lies in its subtlety. You see, it hides in the place that we are least likely to look. When we talk about idols, we are all too aware of the fact that we need to perhaps clean out our garages, look at the things that we enjoy, whether it be boats or cars, or maybe look at our large homes, or perhaps even in food, perhaps in sports, as I myself sat and enjoyed my Wildcats victory today and have dressed the part in celebration. We we have to be aware of those outward manifestations of idolatry, whether it may be a man, a woman, an object. We treat those things with suspicion, rightly so, because those things can often... Come to have a stranglehold in our lives. But the idol that I'm talking about tonight is one that is far more dangerous and one that is, again, hidden because we never think to look in our own mirrors for an idol. Of course, the fiery God to which I'm referring is yourself. From the very first lie that Satan told, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Man has struggled to identify and do battle against this insidious idol. Fortunately, God gives us plenty of warning in his word about what this idol looks like and how we can avoid it. Last week, as we considered the life of Samson, we looked at the danger of desire, how Samson's sensual desires drove him to disregard the law, drove him off the right path, drove him to harm the ones he loved, drove him to take unnecessary risks, all the while God was working, in spite of Samson's actions, to rescue and redeem his people. Tonight, as we continue to look at the story of Samson, we will come face-to-face with this idol of the self. We will unmask it for what it really is, as we see how giving in to self-desire, as Samson did in chapter 14, ultimately leads to self-worship, which is what we're going to see in chapter 15. We will see the dire consequences of feeding this fiery idol. So, as is custom, I would ask that if you are able, that you stand with me in honor of reading the word of God. Judges chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, After a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them, hip and thigh, with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, But we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand. But we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, "'reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. "'Then Samson said, "'With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, "'with the jawbone of a donkey I have slain a thousand men.' "'And so it was, when he had finished speaking, "'that he threw the jawbone from his hand "'and called that place Ramoth-Lehi. "'Then he became very thirsty.' So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel twenty years in the days of Philistines. You may be seated. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, we ask that as we continue to study your word tonight and and continue to examine our own lives for traces of self-worship, that you would reveal very clearly to us where we are tempted to bow the knee to the God in the mirror. God, I pray that we would repent of any such inclinations and that we would worship You and you alone. That we would subject ourselves to your instruction and your desires rather than attempting to have you bow to our whims. God, I pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to consider your word accurately tonight. And may we find in it rich truth that is applicable in all of our lives so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. With Samson here in this chapter, we are able to see where self-worship ultimately leads. This narrative begins a few months after the end of chapter 14, after Samson's outburst of anger had led him to slaughtering 30 Philistine men and taking from them clothing to pay off a debt that he had incurred upon himself by making a foolish bet. After some time had elapsed, Samson decides that it's time to go up and to see his wife. And so uh, he goes to the city, to his father-in-law's house, and we're told that he has a young goat in tow with him. It's very clear that Samson knows the way to a woman's heart. Uh, Some of you single men here tonight might want to take note. Animal husbandry may be the way to go. Um, However, we're told that when Samson arrives at her house... He's met with a shock. Her father refuses to let him go into his wife, and it's very clear here from what Samson says. He wants to go into her room, what he has in mind. But her father-in-law says, no, you can't go in. She's not your wife anymore. I gave her to your companion. He says that he assumed Samson thoroughly hated her. In other words, had, in fact, divorced her by abandoning her therefore he had given her to his best man as a bride Samson's father-in-law here is apologetic he even offers Samson as a consolation prize his younger daughter he says see look she's even more attractive than the one that you married you can have her but Samson is having none of it Samson's father-in-law obviously knows what kind of man that Samson is he's the kind of man that would kill 30 men in a city and take their clothes to pay off a bet And so he's hoping to keep Samson's anger at bay. Unfortunately, it does not work. And so Samson exclaims, This time I will not be guilty of the harm that I do to the Philistines. Which in fact belies the fact that Samson understands he actually was guilty and in the wrong for doing what he had done in the previous chapter. That he was brash, that he acted imprudently. Here he says, I will not be guilty. But even this is an indication that Samson is, in fact, worshiping himself because he justifies his own actions by his own standard. He's the one that's determining, I will not be guilty. Well, how can you say that, Samson? Because I have set the standard. I've set the law. I've determined what is right and wrong in my own eyes. Therefore, as I act, I will not be guilty. Samson is exonerating himself ahead of... (coughs) His actions because he sees himself as his own God. We need to stop here in the story and understand that this reveals a very telling thing about people that worship themselves. We see first and foremost that self-worship is angry. Now on the one hand, Samson has every right to be angry. He has been wronged in a very real sense His wife was given to another man and he attempting to even smooth things over from his former abandonment is rebuffed in his attempts. There's no reconciliation that's to take place here. The wedding is done. Samson has been sinned against but his response to being sinned against is what reveals who he is truly worshiping. You see, anger is sometimes... And in fact, often a very appropriate response. David Pallison in the book Good and Angry, which we still have a few copies here for sale. uh, If you would like to get one, I would commend it highly to you. But in that book, he says that anger at its fundamental level is a recognition that something matters and that it is not right. For Samson, his wife, to a degree, perhaps it was a very small degree that... Only comprised him being gratified by her, but to a degree she was important to him. She mattered to him. And the situation as it is now is not right. He has been wronged, and so anger would be an appropriate response here. When we see something that is important to us that's not being handled correctly, then anger is inevitable. And in many cases, anger is a good and right response. The question that we must always ask ourselves, though, is why does this thing matter to me? Why is this important? Do I have the right standard here? Am I I placing importance on this thing for the right reason? And then what should my response be? If this is important and if it's not right, what should my response be? You see, if Samson was upset because God's law had been violated... He would have sought a way to make it right while honoring God. But his concern is not for God's law. It was his own pride, his own idolatry of self that had been offended. How dare someone do this to me? How dare my father-in-law treat me this way? Therefore, Samson's response to this situation is going to create a spiral of escalation in which he and the Philistines are going to retaliate against one another until one or the other of them is destroyed. This is the reverse of the golden rule. We see later in the passage that both he and the Philistines confess this, confess this anti-golden rule to the tribe of Judah. The Philistines come up and, and the tribe of Judah says, Why are you up here? And they say, We're going to do to Samson as he has done to us. And they go to Samson and they say, Samson, what what have you done? He says, I have done to them as they have done to me. It's the anti-golden rule. Not do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but do unto others as they have done to you. As a teacher, I saw this all the time with my students. You have a conflict between two students and you try to get to the, the heart of what happened. And one student will say, well, they said something mean to me. Well, how did you respond? Well, I snatched their pencil away. Well, how did they respond? Well, I slap them in the face and then I shove that person and it just keeps escalating because I'm doing to them as they have done to me and I've always got to up the ante because I have to show that I'm superior. I have to show that I'm stronger. Adults do the same thing. We're just more clever in the way that we do it. But in that type of reverse golden rule mindset, there is no concern for the glory of God. For Samson, there's only a desire to serve himself in vengeance. How can I be vindicated? That's what Samson wants. He wants vindication, validation that he is in the right. And he's going to prove it by force. Later in Good and Angry, Pallison talks about this. He says, there's something high and mighty about anger when distilled to its basic elements. Anger goes wrong when you get godlike when your desires become divine law, poke your, poke your way into every example of bad anger and you'll find God playing. That's exactly what we have here. When we see bad anger, we see someone playing God. We see their desires being treated like it's divine law. And you must bow to my law. But he then says when anger goes right, there's always something higher, some higher purpose or person who puts a cap on anger who sets a limit on bitterness, who gives reasons not to whine and complain. The Most High God, His higher law, His loving mercies, and His higher purposes transform anger. Something miraculous happens when I no longer say, My kingdom come, my will be done on earth. My motives no longer operate in God-usurping mode. But you see, that's exactly the mode that Samson is operating in. He is operating in God, usurping mode because of his self-worship. See, when we see ourselves as all-important, as God, then when we are offended by someone, we demand a price be paid for that offense. We demand that they lay a sacrifice on the altar to ourselves. They must sacrifice at our idol. And if they refuse, which they likely will because often they are worshiping themselves as well, then we lock into a power struggle that looks exactly what happened, exactly like what happens here between Samson and the Philistines. Do unto them as they have done to me. I'm always having to up the ante. I'm always having to escalate. I kick them when they've slapped me. I, I punch them when they've thumped me. We, we always have to ratchet it up a notch. And ultimately that type of retaliation is going to lead to destruction. When we are worshiping self, then our anger is directed against those who do not bow to our whims. And so self-worship is angry. It's always going to lead to anger because guess what? Other people aren't going to worship your idol. Other people aren't going to bow the knee to you. And that's where we see so much conflict coming from. This is why a selfish husband will verbally or physically abuse his wife when she doesn't do things just the way He wants, when she doesn't cook His eggs to perfection or doesn't cook eggs at all, whenever she leaves spots on the dishes or this or that or whatever it may be, He may belittle her, break her confidence, seek ways to humiliate her or withhold His affection from her because He is an idolater and His God is Himself. And any little thing can set it off because when you're God, after all, Any offense is blasphemy. Women who worship themselves may spend their family's income to create an image of themselves that is worthy of worship with just the right shoes, just the right clothes, just the right makeup. They may subtly try to elicit praise from men even by saying negative things about themselves because they want you to come and worship them. Oh, I'm not really that pretty. Nobody really likes me. Why do they say that? Because they want you to disagree with them and tell them how pretty they are and how loved they are because they want you to worship their idol with them. This is why we cannot write off selfishness in our children as if it is no big deal because it will turn into this fiery, all-consuming idol if we leave it unchecked. In their teenage years, it will manifest itself and demands that their schedule and their social life become the center of the family's universe. Heaven forbid that the parents actually dictate to that teenage child where they're going and who they're going with or what the expectations may be. Because when we're worshiping ourselves, we can't tolerate being told what to do. As a church, as families, as parents we must work hard against these idolatrous passions. We must work hard against them in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters and in our children. Otherwise, we can expect to see people lashing out in anger when their desires are not met, like Samson. Furthermore, with self-worshipping anger, there is never an end in sight. Again, you always have to up the ante. There's always going to be escalation. If I am offended, I have to one-up you. The only way that your anger can be satisfied is if you are proven right, your desire is validated, and you have dominated the other person. You can never fathom an outcome where the other person does not submit to you, where you don't get what you want. This is not anger that glorifies God. Anger that glorifies God first gets the log out of your own eye, first examines your own heart, to see where you maybe have sinned, where you maybe have been in the wrong, where it confesses your own wrongs, where you go to the Lord and confess where you may have sinned, where you apologize for the errors that you have made, and then only confronts your brother or sister in an attempt to be reconciled to them. You see, the idol of self has no interest in reconciliation. Its only interest is in defeat. And domination the second point that we see here with Samson first self-worship is angry second self-worship is alienating by this chapter one subtle omission that we find is Samson's parents are nowhere to be seen they have disappeared from the scene after the wedding they're no longer involved His actions also have dire consequences for his wife and her family. As a result of his act of retribution against the Philistines, she and her family are burned alive in their home. You'll notice this was the very fate that she was trying to avoid in chapter 14. She was threatened with at her wedding. However, her husband, who should have been looking out for her best interests, acts in such a way in both cases at the wedding and now that she is put directly in harm's way. Why is that? It's because he's looking out for his own interests and not hers. Samson had to have known what was going to happen to his wife and to her father. He had to know what was coming. Think about his actions. His father-in-law has sinned against him. He has been wronged by this family. And so he burns down all the crops of all the Philistines. Not only their harvested grain, the grain that's in shocks, but the grain that's still standing in the field that hasn't been harvested yet, their vineyards, their olive groves, he burns it all down. This is going to be devastating for them. His fury engulfs more than just the guilty party. These actions had to be calculated. He had to think about this. Think about it. It takes a while to catch 300 foxes and then to tie their tails together. And tie torches to them. At any point during all of that process, Samson could have said, you know, this may be going a little overboard here. Maybe, maybe this isn't what I need to do to get my point across. But nonetheless, his fury is unchecked. and So Samson creates consequences for his wife's family that will ultimately lead to their death. Yet that's not his concern. His concern is serving his own self-interests. Therefore, Samson effectively orphans himself. He widows himself due to his own self-worship. By the end of this chapter, he also alienates himself from his own countrymen. His actions lack any type of servant leadership that we see through some of the other judges. As we've gone through the book of Judges, some judges have been more servant leaders than others. We remember back at the beginning... Othniel and Ehud and some of these other more faithful judges act in ways that, that actually go to serve the nation of Israel. Samson is only interested in serving himself. And so when he retreats back to his own countrymen, they treat him like a fugitive instead of a hero. The other judges, the, the other judges in, in, in this book, the nation has rallied behind. They've risen up to do battle with them. Here, they come out against Samson. He isn't their leader. He's merely a man that they fear. And now he's caused them great trouble with their Philistine overlords. Samson's actions drive a wedge between him and his own people. He should have been leading them in an uprising against these these pagans. But because he is so self-centered, he's unable to provide the type of leadership that they need. You see, yourself is always going to be a lonely God. When you live for yourself and serve only yourself, soon yourself is all you will be left with. Samson finds himself alone, worshiping his false God. This really is a a pitiful scene in the middle of chapter 15. After Samson has struck the Philistines, a serious blow, he retreats and he goes and hides in the wilderness in the rocks, in a cave, away from all people. And his own countrymen, his own people, come out to him. They arrest him to hand him back over to the Philistines, this judge that God has provided them, this judge that God has empowered, has given all the gifts, has given the resources to, and yet he's ostracized himself from the people that he should be serving. He allows himself to be captured by them and turned over to the Philistines. At this point, Samson is utterly alone. He's hiding in a rock, a fitting sanctuary for his false god. The last point we see, first, self-worship is angry. Second, self-worship is alienating. Third, self-worship is anti-Christ. Samson quickly goes from this low point to another high point. After his wife's family is burned, he wins a decisive victory over the Philistines. After he is bound and turned over by his own countrymen, he once again wins an incredible victory over the enemy. We're told that he kills 1,000 of them with the jawbone of a donkey. But it's in the aftermath of this great battle that we see just how deep his self-worship goes goes Samson sings a song of praise but notice who it's to it's himself Samson's a poet and he didn't know it but unlike the song of Deborah and Barak that we have recorded earlier in the book of Judges this song of praise has very little to do with God it's about him It's about the heaps of men that he's killed. In fact, this song resembles more the song of Lamech in the book of Genesis than it does anything that we've seen in the book of Judges or anything like we would see in the Psalms. He even renames this place Jawbone Hill. It's roughly the translation of of the the place name that he gives this here. Jawbone Hill, an eternal memorial to the heaps of men, this, this hill of men that he's killed with this jawbone. But in his vulnerability here, in this moment, Samson reveals something profound. Because you see, for the first time, Samson addresses God directly. But what he says is astonishing. He says, You have given this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Now you will let me die in thirst? We may think that this is humility from Samson. After all, he calls himself a... Servant here. Doesn't Paul and others in the New Testament call themselves servants? But we would be mistaken in such an assumption. Notice his brazen challenge to God. He is accusing God for failing to provide for him. And and basically, the exact same assumption is, as a matter of fact, the way this is, is laid out here at the end of this chapter, it's meant to mimic what happened with the Jews in the wilderness. When they said, God, did you bring us out here to die? Did you deliver us from Egypt to die of thirst? Samson says, "Would you give me this great victory now to let me die of thirst?" Accusing God. We know that didn't turn out well for the Jews in the wilderness. Yet here God does provide. He provides Samson a drink of water. But we see in this that Samson views himself as the instrument of salvation, not God. He says, God has allowed it, but it's by your servant's hand. I'm the one that's done this. I'm the one that has the right to rename this place after what I've done. I'm going to call this Jawbone Hill after what I have done, after all these men that I've killed. I'm going to sing a song of praise to myself. Why else would Samson be so incredulous at his plight here if he didn't view himself as a god? How dare you let me thirst, God, after the great salvation that I've just secured. Samson is making God to be his servant here. He is exalting his idol above God. The reason that we read this, and it may not look so bad to us at first glance, is because we often do the same thing. We get frustrated with God when his plans do not suit our whims, when his plans don't line up with ours. When he doesn't provide for us the thing that we think we are entitled to. It could be anything. It could be a spouse. It could be children. It could be a well-paying job, a nice house, a particular set of friends, a cure for the illness or the pain that we are suffering from. Any number of things. We become angry and bitter when God doesn't give us what we think we deserve. God, why wouldn't you give me this Don't I deserve it? Haven't I been faithful for so long? Haven't I done X, Y, and Z? Shouldn't I expect this? After all, I see other people getting it. I see other people getting this thing that I want. Why shouldn't I have it? In essence, we are accusing God of not adequately serving our own self-interests. Yet God does not exist to satisfy our whims. He does not bow the knee to us. That's exactly how Samson is treating him. In fact, Samson's response to his greatest victory stands in direct contrast to the person and work of Christ. Samson's focus here is on his own saving power, the work of his hands, what he was able to do with the jawbone. And the unfairness of the fact that he is now suffering from thirst after this battle. Although amazingly he still finds somehow enough saliva to compose this song to himself. On the cross though. As Christ hung there. Accomplishing a far greater salvation. In true concert with God. He too thirsted. He too hung exhausted, carrying the weight of far more than just a thousand Philistines. But carrying the weight of all our sins, all our wicked deeds, all our evil thoughts, all our self-serving, self-righteous idolatry, he bore the weight of it all on his shoulders. The mountain of sins that he took on that day dwarfed Samson's little jawbone hill a million times over. And Jesus thirsted, but his cries were only answered with sour wine. There was no relief for our true deliverer. Samson thought that God would never let his deliverer fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. He says, God, you would never let this happen. I've won this great victory. Now you would let me die and let me fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Yet that is exactly whose hands beat the flesh off of our Savior's back and drove the nails into his hands. Christ fell into the hands of the uncircumcised for us. Samson thought that God would never let him die of thirst, yet Christ's own tongue dried up and stuck to his jaws, according to Psalm 22. Samson regarded himself as a god for killing a thousand men, yet it was Almighty God himself who stepped down from heaven and truly delivered us from the myriads and myriads of our own sins. Can't you see that living for yourself, worshiping the idol of self, will only take you in the opposite direction of Christ? If we are to be truly saved, if we want to know what true deliverance really is, we must repent of this idol and all others. We must deny ourself in ways that Samson never would have thought feasible. Deny myself. No, I live for myself. I give myself what I want. I exact vengeance on my enemies because they have wronged myself. When our self is God, there is no room for Christ. We must repent of this idol. The good news is that in Christ's suffering and dying, he was paying for our freedom. Even from this. Even from this that besets us every day when we are tempted to do that thing or to wear that thing or to say that thing to some other person that's going to serve ourselves and our own self-interest and try to get what we want by hook or by crook or whatever other way we can get it. Christ has given us freedom. Would we be free from this? Would we deny ourselves and worship Christ alone? Let's pray together. Lord, we marvel that you would be able to use even a man like Samson to accomplish your purposes. And yet, even in providing this deliverance for your people, a temporary deliverance bought by the strength of a man's flesh, you show us just how weak and fleeting these types of victories really are. You show us that we need something so much greater, so much more superior to Samson that he doesn't even register a blip on the radar. You show us that all men who follow after the way of Samson are ultimately going to destroy themselves as they attempt to worship their false god. But, O God, in Christ, salvation can be found. We rejoice in the deliverer that you have given us, the one that did not come into the world to condemn Became came so that we might experience freedom and forgiveness from the condemnation that we were already under. So, Lord, I pray that tonight you would expose us. Allow your word to be a true mirror so that if we see ourselves in any of these things, in any of these tendencies that Samson exhibited, that we would repent of that quickly, that we would root out these things in our own lives, that we would truly grow in faith and in grace as you reveal to us the sin that lurks in the dark corners of our hearts. Lord, forgive us and help us because we desperately need it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.